You're listening to Homicide Worldwide. Your hosts, Sally and Keto, would like to remind our listeners the episodes deal with crimes that are graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. joining us here tonight at Homicide Worldwide Podcast. A quick shout out to all the folks who are supporting us by listening every week. We are so grateful to you all. If there is a case that you would like to hear us talk about, please email suggestions to homicideworldwidepodcast at gmail.com and we will get to that as soon as we can. Please follow us on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Homicide Worldwide Podcast. And finally, please keep telling your friends about us because it really helps our show. We hope you enjoy it this evening, and we'll see you back next week. Here at Homicide Worldwide, we often struggle with the age-old question, are the people that commit these heinous crimes truly evil? In this case tonight, my vote, without a doubt, is yes. Certainly, what we talk about is always terrible. There's no denying that. And so far, as we can tell, there is no one-size-fits-all answer for that question because there are a million little things that make up just one crime that we talk about. But with that said, there are levels of depravity that far outshine others and some crimes that are truly the embodiment of the definition of evil. This story of bodies in the barrels is not new, and most people listening out there have probably heard it told before but it's important to tell again in a way that illustrates the true mentality of our subject tonight. So what happens when you take a psychopath and put him in a government-subsidized fixing bowl, add power and control, sprinkle in some hate, poverty, a pinch of vigilante, and a dash of charisma? You mix it on high, and you get a shit cake and a whole lot of murder. John Justin Bunting. He grew up to be one of the most corrupted and truly evil individuals to ever walk this earth. John and his group of brainwashed murder disciples made Snowtown, a small farming community famous for bodies and barrels, found in an abandoned bank vault. Snowtown, if you are unfamiliar, is about 140 kilometers north of Adelaide, or for our American friends, about 90-ish miles give or take. But that's enough of the geography for now. The how and the why and the who of these horrific crimes ran far deeper than anybody could have ever imagined. It should be noted, this episode will discuss crimes committed against members of the LGBTQIA community. Sally and I feel that it is extremely important to let all of you know who are listening that we will do our very best to be respectful to the victims and that in no way do we share any of the beliefs of this group. Certain language contained in this episode may be derogatory and will be only said as it relates to the story. It does not reflect our belief or opinions in any way. With that said, we are glad that you are here with us as we navigate the often confusing and entangled world of the killers and victims. This is episode 19 of Homicide Worldwide.
Sally. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm very well. So for those of you who are joining us, I am Sally. I'm one of your co-hosts. And I am Kita, the other co-host. Together we form the co-host duo of of Homicide Worldwide. So we're exploring something tonight that's very close to home for me. This story is known as the Snowtown Murders. And in fact, the movie the story was based on was just called Snowtown. But really only one of the murders was committed in Snowtown. This should have been called Adelaide. Most of the murders were committed. And Adelaide is my hometown. I'm going to honor my roots by talking more in my natural Australian accent tonight. And I was in my mid to late teens when this kind of all went down. And I was very aware of it. I was very aware of how horrified everybody was by it and how grossed out and repulsed everyone was by it. Really here in my adulthood, it's been much better to take a dive into the parts of this that I really didn't understand. Snowtown is a massive story. This is in There's, fact our take two. And so we had to kind of back out of it and really start again and, and look down on this and really think, what is the story here? The story really lies in how it is often named. It's often called the bodies in the barrels murders. The story is that eight dismembered people were found in six plastic barrels in a disused bank vault in a tiny Australian town. That's kind of the moment where it all hit the public eye. Yeah. This came out very rapidly. Nobody had really known about it before then, except the police were investigating it and the murderers. It came out very quickly, very suddenly. Everyone was totally shocked by it. The story begins with this end point. And so we're going to kind of start there and look at who gets us here. Who put these barrels here? Who killed the people who were in them? What happened to those people? Why were they chosen to be in those barrels? Were there other people who were killed, who were not in the barrels? The answer is yes. <laughs> so with, without any further ado, let's jump on in. Probably the best place to start with that is who put them in the barrels? And the first answer to that question and the most important answer and the name that you should keep in mind as we go through this is John Bunting. Yes. John Justin Bunting. Yes. John Bunting was at the top of the food chain when it came to the group of men who committed these murders. And it was a group. Groups of serial killers are extremely rare. Yeah, it's the unicorn of serial killing. Even more so than women. Obviously, uh, single serial killers are the most common, followed by couples. Right. And then you get this kind of very organized group is very uncommon. When it does happen, it usually follows a similar structure where there is one dominant leader and some very subservient followers who follow him out of respect, fear, and because he represents something to them or offers them something that they've been looking for. That's exactly, Mm -hmm. like, to the letter correct. Thank you, Peter. Well, you know what? You're welcome, Sally. So let's talk about John Justin Bunting, who was born uh, 4th September uh, 1966 in Queensland. He was actually not born in Adelaide where the murders happened. So he was born in a town on the outskirts of Brisbane called Inala. And Inala was a pretty impoverished area. It had a lot of heavily subsidized government housing. Australia has a very small homeless population compared to, say, for example, America. And one of the reasons for that is subsidized government housing. But as you might expect, it's not particularly grand 
because a lot of the people in that area are impoverished. They come from often very challenging backgrounds. You do tend to see a lot of crime, a lot of real bleak lives, a lot of despair. And that start in life kind of followed him throughout his life. His parents didn't really help. It wasn't as though he actually like had like an abusive childhood per se. It was just a very, I feel like it was just a clinical childhood, like in that regimented, very yes, sort just, of clean and sterile. Yes, like the mom was just like very conservative, proper, uptight. Like if I had to describe her, I would say beige. Just beige. Plastic on all of the furniture. <laughs> yes. Take off your shoes when you enter the house. Not in like Japanese style, but like in a, you're going to get my house dirty style. Exactly. And then the dad just sort of seemed like he was operating in a background kind of. Like bland mm -hmm. as well. Maybe he was like a middle shade of gray. Do you hear that he uh, worked in a place that had a saw and he yes. ended up accidentally cutting off all of his fingers on one hand? Apparently, he played the guitar, and once this workplace accident happened, he no longer yeah, was able... playing days are behind yeah, you at that I mean, point. Sort of need your fingers for that. So his parents were just very, like, strict with him, very mm -hmm. just strident. They just didn't have a loving household, but it wasn't, at the same time, an abusive household. Something happened when John was about eight years old, uh, give or take. He was at a friend's house when he was sexually assaulted by his friend's older brother. He was essentially beaten by the brother and raped repeatedly. He was tied to a bed and sodomized. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Horrific. If you want to get Horrific. specific on that. And you know we like specific, but in this situation, it is a, a horrible thing to have to think about that this happened to a child. Even somebody as awful as John Bunting should never have to go through that as a child. This friend had been doing this to his brother as well. So it was kind of like he did that to both boys in the same afternoon. And then evidently... Some of his friends got involved and it ended up being more of like kind of like a gang attack. That's was my boys. understanding as well. Yeah. When that attack was over with, it kind of got busted because the dad walked in and saw what was happening and freaked out on his son and was like, knock it the fuck off. And Untie these children that you're sexually assaulting. <laughs> yeah. So the brother gets on his motorcycle and takes off. John is essentially told by the boy's father to go to the doctor and get some help while he's bleeding and has clearly been raped by his oldest son. Now, an interesting twist to this in like instant karma ways, right after that, the kid jumped on his motorcycle and took off, he ended up getting into an accident where he, it sounds like he either was hit by the bus or he ended up like sliding out. I don't know if he went into like some like power slide or something on the bike and mm -hmm. ended up somehow being killed by a city bus. Almost right immediately away. right after that happened. Instant karma's gonna get you. I mean, I can't say I feel bad for the guy. But it's the damage at this point mm -hmm. is done. John Bunting is massively traumatized by this. Yeah. Goes home, does not go to the doctor, goes home, still bleeding from his back end, which happens when horrible things have happened. And his mom basically cuffs him around the head and says, why are you late? Yeah. And he's got marks all over his face and he's got a busted lip and he says that he had a bike accident. Like no sympathy from Jan. Why did you get injured? He's clearly injured. Smack. This boy's clearly injured and she's like slapping him upside the head. So I say he wasn't abused from what I can tell, but this is the type of environment that he would come home to where the rules, and if you didn't play by the rules, you kind of got into big trouble. 
Another thing to know, a couple more things to know about John Bunting before we move on is that he liked to experiment with chemicals. Mm-hmm. He was really into chemicals as a young child. And one of his favorite childhood uh, pastimes was to get like a jar and put different chemicals in them and then drop insects into them and see what would happen. And the ones where they died slowly were his personal favorites, unsurprisingly. Yeah, so how um, foretelling. Right, exactly. Uh, another thing about John Bunting was that he had uh, this kind of strange fascination with digging. Yeah. He always liked to dig holes. It was so and weird. He just liked the process of digging. Maybe he felt there was something about uncovering or you know, revealing. Who knows? I don't want to armchair psychology this into the ground. But no formal education, by the way, in arms in <laughs> no. any kind of psychological background. <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> no. So he he digs holes a lot, and this is going to kind of follow him around. He digs a, a couple of big holes in his backyard that are really very big, and they go back kind of under the house, like fifteen feet. That's really not good deep. for the house to sit on, by the way. No foundations. <laughs> So uh, his dad finds this out, is just horrified and tells him to fill it in. And, and John is very resentful about that. Like, I can't have anything to myself, not even my holes. How did the dad not notice this like massive amount of dirt mounds? It's a right. fucking lot of displaced earth. Maybe he just didn't go out the back a lot? I don't know. I don't know, Tom. I don't know, Tom. Morning, the loss of his fingers. Something about losing all your fingers. <laughs> so John Bunting, as he gets older, he has a couple of experiences that really shape him. One of them is that at uh, about age 13, he meets this older guy called Benny. Benny has had one hell of a horrible, horrible life. And they kind of form this odd friendship. There's no indication that there's anything other than friendship involved. Benny kind of teaches him the ropes on how to mess around and mess with people. They do some petty crimes. One of their favorites is directed at gay people later also at pedophiles and to be very clear we do not conflate those two things here pedophilia and uh sexual orientation are very separate and we do not see them as the same exactly there just going to clear that up right now so if we talk about them side by side that doesn't mean that we think they're the same thing right clarity clarity is important so benny teaches him basically how to lure pedophiles and then uh, what would happen is John would stand on a street corner and just look all innocent. He was kind of small for his age. He was mm-hmm. always a short guy. He looked younger than he was. So at age 13, he probably looked like he was more like 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. He would just kind of stand there until somebody from the neighborhood who had an interested young boys would stop by and say, hi, Sonny, you want to come to my house with me? And I'll, we can, you know, I'll give you a drink and you can hang out with me. And he would say, oh, I, I'd love to do that. Let me just go tell my brother, though. He's just around the corner. And so he would lead the, the guy who was trying to take him into his house around the corner. And there would be Benny. And together they would basically bash and beat these men. Yeah. And this was a favorite pastime. It seemed like that happened a lot. It doesn't it? There is some indication later. Uh, John Bunting brags to one of his co-conspirators that Benny also taught him how to kill and that together they killed several people. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know. John Bunting was known for lying, so it's hard to know how true it is, but it certainly explains a lot of how he got this experience. Yeah, 100%. He also ends up working at a crematorium for a while, so he did have some exposure to bodies. That was he, had, he had several jobs that were really suited to his strength interests and skill sets <laughs> very tailored another uh, job that he had was at an abattoir which is a, a australian for slaughterhouse 
and actually I think that's French for slaughterhouse, but we're so continental and fancy down <laughs> south in Australia, we say abattoir. Well, that is it's fancy. Much, it's much nicer than slaughterhouse, too. <laughs> a rose by any other name. So John is really good at working in the abattoir. It turns out that this is really something that he is enjoying. He has a girlfriend at the time and he is obsessed with it. He talks about it all the time. He describes how he cuts through the carcasses. He also talks about how he cuts them at the joints, and he's particularly enamored of describing the the color of their entrails in the the entrail bucket. What a lovely conversation to mm -hmm. have over some meat or sausages. (laughs) Delicious. And so he talks about it to his his girlfriend, later wife, Veronica, who he marries when uh, he's in his early 20s. He just won't shut up about it, about his experiences at the abattoir. And this pattern of him obsessively vocalizing about things that are really in his mind is, again, a pattern that we see throughout his life. Mm-hmm. He's just getting started, baby. Just getting started. Something to be aware of with John Bunting is, you know, now that we're kind of in his young adulthood, he was really described as somewhat charismatic. He wasn't really like the type of party guy. He wasn't out. He was not at all into drugs. He was not at all into drinking very much, like the very occasional drink. All of this was done with like a very clear clear mindset. He was also extremely manipulative and dominant with people, as you're going to come to find out in this episode tonight. (laughs) The charisma is interesting, though. I mean, almost all the women were like hypnotized by him right from the start or dickmatized. I was going to say, that's what you mentioned before was the dickmatization. (laughs) Right from the start, there was something about him. He wasn't particularly tall. He wasn't particularly good looking. It was just something about him that was just irresistible to some ladies. And some Uh, men too. Men were... And some gentlemen. You know, would go weak in the knees, not in a sexual way, but just like hanging on every single word. There are just Mm -hmm. some people who have that thing, whatever that Mm -hmm. thing is, that... Mojo, baby. Some people just need to be like led by somebody like this, unfortunately, in this case. And when the two come together, when you've got someone who's domineering and aggressive and somebody who is a little, people who are a little slower in the old upstairs department really are looking for a leader to lead them through their shitty ass lives. Yeah, because they're weak and they're impoverished and maybe relatively uneducated because of their circumstance, um, Mm. which was the case with his wife, um, Veronica, who you mentioned. She was relatively uneducated. They met in a metalworking shop class. Mm-hmm. Like a vocational training yeah. metalwork class. So they met there and apparently hit it off. And she was uh, described as being pretty much, I'm just going to use the term illiterate. I think she could read to some degree, but I would say that she's mostly illiterate. Blind completely in one eye, partially blind in the other eye, and did not have uh, very good hearing. So if that gives anybody any indication of the type of people that he would sort of rope into his world, it was always people who were kind of a little bit maybe on the weaker side or like maybe an outlier. Yeah, it's, he's not going to meet up with like another alpha male. No, no. Goodness me. That would be too difficult. Goodness me. Um, goodness me, no. <laughs> certainly not. Heavens to Betsy. Uh, Heavens to Murgatroyd, as my grandmother so used to say. I used to love that. God, I, right? My, my, my mom would say that too. So we've got one player here, and the first player we have is the most important one, and that is John Bunting. He's charismatic, he's domineering, he's got the skills when it comes to cutting up live things. He has a a fascination with digging, kind of helpful if you're a murderer. He's got a fascination with things dying and watching them die. 
uh, and that will come in too. We have more, a few more people to introduce you to. The next most important in this case to remember is Robert Wagner. Not the actor Robert Wagner, a different Robert Wagner, Australian Robert Wagner. A much bigger, lurchy Robert a little Wagner. Dumb, a little dumber. <laughs> Robert Wagner was born uh, 28th November 1971 in Parramatta in New South mm-hmm. Wales. And he and Bunting became friends in 1991. They kind of lived in the same area. Wagner and he were kind of down the road friends, yeah. so they kind of met in the neighborhood. Robert Wagner himself also had a kind of difficult upbringing, and he also suffered from sexual abuse as a child. Yes, he did. At the age of seven or thereabouts, uh, he was sexually molested. After the molestation took place, he, at that tender young age, tried to kill himself. He tried to commit suicide. The level of traumatization must have just been awful. Yeah. It's really kind of unclear with his parents what they knew or what they did not know about this uh sexual assault on their son so there isn't a lot of information that I could find that was really reliable in that way it seemed like he kind of he did go through some schooling but around the age of 14 uh, he was just skipping out he wasn't going to class at all the school had essentially just kind of given up on him and was like sorry but you know we can't make him go to school if he doesn't want to go to school so at around the age of 14 Wagner becomes involved with a person named Barry Lane. And Barry is light years older than Robert Wagner. He's probably close to 30 at this point, I believe. And he is a a man who was ahead of his time a little bit in a certain way. He was a cross-dressing male who actually started to take some hormone medication to try to transition as a woman. But he was also a homosexual man with a pedophile record. He had been convicted twice and was released because a judge was actually pretty lenient on him, sort of understanding that he was in a really sensitive position with his identity. The judge actually went pretty easy on him and was trying to be cool and was like, obviously you've got some things you need to work out, so don't let this happen again. And so he was let out and he continued to go for young boys. Time around, it happened to be Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner and he were a couple for, it was Mm -hmm. a a number of years, like Mm -hmm. at least five or six. At least five or six. Yeah. And to be clear, Robert Wagner's mom is, Carol is not down with Not at all. She's like, "Uh, this is not cool. You're barely 14. What do you know about the world? And so she she can kind of see that her son is going off the rails here. And why are you with police. a man who's 30 years old? Right, who has <laughs> pedophile convictions. Right. And so she calls the police and they go around and they would get Robert and they would take him back home and he would leave and he'd go back to Barry again, rinse and repeat over and over again. Yes. And after a while, they were just like, look, there's nothing we can do. He's going to keep doing it. Yeah. The school was like, there's nothing we can do. He, she would call like you know, welfare officers mm-hmm. and talk to them and they'd be like, He's first, he's enormous. He was this giant kid, and he wasn't afraid to use his fists as needed. And there was nothing really that anyone could do. And then when he's about 14, he and Barry Lane take off. Yeah, they just blow town. The, the other thing is, too, like when Carol tried to actually get some authorities involved, um, they, just, they didn't want to deal with it. 
because, yeah. you know, it was just, it was too much for them to deal with, which is really tragic mm-hmm. because things could have been different and maybe it wouldn't have been different. I don't know, but it could have been, at least there could have been a shot, but you know, it took them forever. And by the time somebody actually like gave her any kind of answer, it was like, well, your son's almost of age. So there's really nothing that we can do about it now. Mm-hmm. So it took a very long time for her to even get that shitty ass response from the authorities. And so at that point, you know, it was pretty much it. And he and his mother didn't speak for a long time. It was that whole period of him being gone. And he and Barry returned back to Adelaide when when Robert Wagner was about 18. Uh-huh. And so that's when they returned and they moved into subsidized housing right down the street from John Bunting. Yes. What a wonderful, what a wonderful neighborhood. Seriously, there's just so many awesome people in this neighborhood. But wait, there's going to be more. There is more. With this relationship between Barry Lane and Robert Wagner, it's not a wonderful relationship by any stretch of the imagination. It is rife with abuse and just anger and there's a lot of physical altercations there's a lot of yelling there's a lot of kicking and they're not much for cleaning house apparently the house is full of like dog and cat feces empty food containers and they don't clean and they don't wash anything and And they have huge dogs they have a doberman pincher and then they have a like an Mm -hmm. alsatian i want alsatian is that right yep so they have this alsatian which is essentially a german shepherd because i'm like what is an alsatian that sounds like oh my god it's a fancy german shepherd that's exactly what i found out (laughs) Anyway, they have these dogs and they're basically there for their protection because, again, they're in a same-sex relationship and they are not ultra popular for this in this area. And so the dogs are essentially there kind of as their protectors, as well as another... Not just for their protection. (laughs) This this is a part you might, if you like dogs, go ahead and block your ears for the next 30 seconds. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to block my ears. Okay, you block your ears. So the other thing that these two were known for in their neighborhood were not so well-disguised acts of bestiality towards their dogs. They would kind of corner one of them in the yard. The Doberman. It's the, the poor Doberman. And they, one of, uh, Robert Wagner would hold the front end of the dog and Barry Lane would, uh, well, you know what? You can make your own conclusions you on that. You can make the dots yourself, yeah. please, because I don't want to say it. But you know what bestiality is, and yeah. If but- I were a Doberman and somebody were trying to be unpleasant with my rear hindquarters, I think I would turn around and, and bite their dick off. You would think that that would have been I the Doberman's reaction, but I don't know. I mean, nothing's as it should be in this area anyway, so I don't though. know. So. so anyway, this is what they're known for, this violent home life absolutely filthy home the neighbors hate them for it they're really the the target of a lot of slurs and hatred Mm -hmm. some of it obviously because simply because they're gay which sucks and in other ways because they're extremely shitty neighbors fuck their animals Um, (laughs) i would think that that would kind of like trump everything else it really does i think at that point you kind of have what's coming to you so they have a terrible uh, reputation in the neighborhood but they become friends with someone down the street named John Bunting, which you'd think would be strange because John Bunting absolutely hates gay people and absolutely hates pedophiles with an incandescent rage. But he befriends these guys. He befriends them. It's really an interesting relationship because he did not believe in any way, shape or form that Robert Wagner was gay. 
Right. He's like misled. Misled because of the age difference. I think at this point, Barry Lane was like in his later 30s. And so there is, you know, this huge age difference. And, you know, John did the math and he's just like, uh, wait, what? <laughs> so his angle was to tolerate Barry, even though he checked two of the biggest boxes that John Bunting hated, which, as you said, was pedophilia and homosexuality. So his angle is to sort of save Robert in a way from this lifestyle that he doesn't agree with. Also to use Barry Lane as connection for him to find other pedo cells. That's right. And, and so I guess apparently that's quite a lot in Adelaide. Yeah. And so his motivation with this relationship was coming from a place of like a vigilante mentality. Mm-hmm. And so he he puts up with it and he just he kind of just swallows his pride and he just deals with it so that he can get a lead on other people, which he actually ends up doing. And he ends up creating this wall that is called the Wall of Rock Spiders. What that means is essentially he is writing down names. There's like a a wall and in the center of it has Barry Lane's name. And from there, there are countless sticky notes with other people's names that he has found out through Barry Lane with their phone numbers, their addresses. There's all kinds of information that he's collecting on these people. And it's all kind of connected. CSI Adelaide, man. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's all connected by like these strings and tacks like you would see in the CSI and he has all of these and he would take the information that he had like he had a phone number for example he would call them up and he would you know you're this you're that you're horrible blah blah you know you're getting what's coming to you and literally scream in the phone and hang up on these people and so it was a lot of harassment to people that he has found through Barry. Since he had occasionally gotten an address every once in a while he would go over and he would kind of tag their home with slurs and other things that was sort of his angle with this was just to find out as much information as he could on these on these people apparently he thought he was doing something i don't know with a higher purpose somehow mm-hmm. i don't know what he I thought think it, but i think it started out in that way i i doubt it was really in any way driven by a philanthropical urge i think it was a doubtful a good reason to excuse what he had planned Exactly. The shoe fit at the time, so he was going to wear it. That's right. So we've got John Bunting, the leader. We've got Robert Wagner, his sidekick, slash protege, slash... The muscle. He's the muscle. That's what he is. He's like, the guy is over six feet. He's really broad. Yeah. He's not particularly bright. And he ends up just worshipping John Bunting. So John Bunting can say jump, and he will absolutely jump. Mm -hmm. And Robert Wagner is in a relationship with convicted pedophile Barry Lane. There's this very weird, tense kind of relationship between all these people. Barry Lane walks this very dicey fence between being detested and being a focus of John Bunting's hatred, but also supplying him with names and identities of people in the neighborhood. John Bunting could harass and attack and damage their property and stuff like this. Right. But all the while, it didn't really come off to me when I was reading about this that Barry had any kind of... I don't think he really realized that that's what he was being used for. Not at the start. It didn't read that way to him, I guess. There are a couple more figures to know. One of them is Mark Hayden. 
Mark Hayden met John Bunting also at one of these metalwork courses. And similarly to Robert Wagner, Mark Hayden is not necessarily the sharpest tool in the shed. He kind of just went along with things. And he developed a huge admiration for John Bunting and became part of this weird little clique. So it was these four guys and they would sit around a table and John Bunting would just spew all this hatred and vitriol about any number of things, gay people, pedophiles, even when there's two of them sitting right there. But he would do all this stuff and and say all these things and they would just sit and listen and sit and listen to him. So Mark Hayden became part of this group. He also lived in the neighborhood. Then we had Robert Wagner and his boyfriend, Barry Lane. And then at the head of all of it, John John Bunting. A little later, we'll also introduce you to Jamie Vlasakis. Jamie Vlasakis doesn't come into this until a little bit later. Eventually, John Bunting becomes involved with Jamie's mom, Elizabeth Harvey, and one of their many Elizabeths. So many. It's like everybody's Elizabeth. I know. God, just go by Liz or Beth. Oh, yeah. Lizzie or something. Help us out. Ellie. Can we? Anything. Vitamin E. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that street name. That's a street name, right? Exactly. <laughs> Vitamin E. So Jamie is this young guy, while he is in his teens, is also in the unfortunate position of having been sexually assaulted as a teenager. He is assaulted by his half-brother, whose name is Troy Yude. And this affects him horribly. He descends into this spiral of drug addiction and self-destruction that he's really not able to get out of his entire life. Jamie Blasakis was also horribly sexually abused by his father, biological father, who died when he was, I think, around 10. So his whole life was really this distrust of all the father figures or older males in his immediate family. His father and his half-brother both sexually abused him. And so when he met John Bunting, he was this man who railed against sexual abusers, who was strong, who was decisive, charismatic. He was involved with Jamie's mom. And so he kind of stepped into this father figure role and especially at the start, a little less as we went on, but at the start, Jamie really worships John Bunting. Now John Bunting has three people who really worship him. Uh He's got Robert Wagner, who's this young man who identifies as gay, but John Bunting doesn't really think he's gay. (laughs) We've got Mark Hayden, who ends up kind of being a a helper to John Bunting in executing these murders. Uh And we've got Jamie Vlasakis, the son of one of John Bunting's lovers, Elizabeth. She's his girlfriend. Right to the end. And all these these three guys really worship him. So he kind of has this little gang of brainwashed disciples who are there to do his bidding. I've also read, I haven't been able to substantiate this, but I've read it and I've heard it a couple of times. There was just a very brief mention of it mm-hmm. that in addition to Troy Yude, his half-brother, as well as his own biological fucking father, sexually molesting him. Jamie Vlasakis was also molested by a neighbor named Jeffrey Payne. Oh, I did read that as well. If that is true, we know for a fact that there were at least two, but there were potentially three. 
men in his life. And mind you, Jamie was born December 24th, 1979. He was very young at the time. What This is all kind of coming together in like the very early to mid 90s. Like he's got, like you said, so much mistrust in men. And now he's got this guy who is kind of speaking his language. He's saying all the things that he's felt all this time, you know, and for him in a way, because he was a kid and he was kind of just used and abused by these people. Like I, I tend to feel a little bit sorry for him because he is one of the few people in this. I actually do have, I don't feel sorry for anybody else to be honest with you, but I do, I do have some measure of empathy for him because that's a lot to go through. It's a lot to be a young kid and have to deal with. So with all of that being said, where are we at now? We are at how we get these four guys to put these bodies in barrels. And we're going to start with the very first murder. So now we get to the point where the first murder happens. Now, the murders are going to get really nasty in terms of torture and all that sort of thing. But the first one is not that way. It's really not. So the first one happens to a young man named Clinton Trezise. Clinton Trezise lived in Adelaide. Uh, He lived in the same area as these guys, and he was seen there a lot. He was kind of a flamboyant gay guy. He had these little shorts that he would wear, and he he sounds kind of adorable, Uh, like bright copper-colored blonde hair. Unfortunately for him, that kind of stood out for John Bunting as exactly the kind of person that he did not like and wanted to remove from society. Clinton Trezise was killed on or around August 31st of 1992. It gets kind of confusing with this one because his body was found in about mid-August, August 16th, 1994. The way that this murder took place, he had been at John Bunting's house. He was sitting on the couch, hanging out, just watching TV or doing whatever they were doing. John Bunting came up from behind It was either with some kind of like mallet or a hammer or something large, heavy, and it's going to get the fucking job done. John Bunting hits Clinton in the back of the head and bludgeons him, caves in this kid's skull. So when he does this, not only is the back of his skull crushed, but so is the front of his skull because it had been the blows had been repeated so much that it got pushed against the floor. Exactly. And so it was sort of like from both ends front and back when that happened john bunting collected the remains of clinton and along with barry lane he used barry lane's car and robert wagner the muscle and they took this young boy clinton and they drove him to a little town called lower light and they buried him in a shallow grave and just left him there and that was it. And they and just like big lonely field. Yeah, it's graves. very desolate, you know. And mm-hmm. just, I mean, it's already a really tiny community as it is of like what it's got like five hundred people or mm-hmm. I'll just say less than a thousand. How about that? Just less to, than a thousand. Just just to be on the safe side. Yeah, like a little farming community. So he, they just leave him out there, and he is not found for a couple of years, mm-hmm. just sitting out there. And when they find him, they don't know who he is. But we're going to come back to that because it plays into the story a little bit later on. 
He is reported missing. Um, his sister, Sherry, goes over to his house and kind of tries to look in the window. And he's not always the, the cleanest of people, but the house is absolutely trashed. It looks like someone's been living in there and doing all kinds of crap in there. And something's just weird to her about it. You know, he's, he's left a lot of his personal belongings behind. And so she reports it to the police. Uh, later, uh, Clinton's mother also reports it as a, a missing person, mm-hmm. and they don't connect the dots for a really long time. Yeah. What's really interesting is when they reported him as a missing person, it was around 1995. It was it was a long time. And the reason, part of the reason for that is because Clinton Trezis was did not have an easy childhood. And so he was sort of in and out of foster care, in and out of foster homes. He did not have a close relationship with his family, um, like his mom. His sister, Sherry, kind of seemed like she she did care. His brother, on the other hand, his reason for not looking for his brother was he thought that maybe he just wanted to have a change of life, was what he said. And so he just sort of let, let it go and he didn't look for him, which is such an interesting mentality to me. I'm like, if, it wouldn't matter like if I thought somebody wanted a change of life, I'd at least want to know that they were all right. Like I would respect that you want a change of life, but like, just let me know you're cool. Like, let me let know, me know you, you're cool. Let me know you're not something. buried in lower light. Yeah. And- <laughs> like shallow grave and yeah. horses yes. on your grave. Yeah, exactly. And so actually at some point when the discovery of Trezise's body happened, it was like reported on TV, I guess. There's like a, how we have America's most wanted, Australia has it, Australia's most wanted. When they saw this error on TV, apparently Bunting allegedly said that that was his handiwork. So he like outwardly admitted it, but it didn't- Proudly. Yeah, and it didn't seem like anybody fucking batted an eye or took it seriously. They were just like, oh, okay, cool, John, right on. Okay, cool, John, don't kill me too. <laughs> oh, gnarly stuff. Yeah. So that's the very first murder. It lacks the features of later murders and that there is no prolonged period of torture. No, it was very, from what you could maybe expect from something like that, like you would hope that it would, either he never saw it coming or it was very, very mm-hmm. fast. I get the impression that it was over before he realized it was happening. That's what I'm going to go with. That's what I'm going to hope for. And thank goodness for small mercies. Yes. The next to be murdered was Ray Davies. Now, Ray Davies' murder was also pretty terrible in many different ways. First of all, Ray Davies was kind of intellectually not all there. He was, I guess you could call him intellectually disabled. It's hard to tell to what degree he was. He lived in a caravan, which is a trailer. So he lived in a caravan behind the house of a lady named Suzanne Allen, who lived kind of in the area of these these guys. So another one just kind of moves into the neighborhood. Ray has a pretty messed up childhood too, Ray Davies. So both of his parents are intellectually disabled. He goes to live with his aunt. When he's about 13, his aunt finds him having sex with the family dog. <sighs> Why is there so much bestiality? God, stop fucking your animals. Just as a rule, what did that animal do to deserve that? I know, it's horrible. So his aunt finds him having sex. I hate that term, having sex. Raping the family dog. (laughs) That's Um, a much more appropriate term, Right, exactly. The dog does not want this to happen. (laughs) As he gets older, the police are going to definitely pay attention to him. He gets charged with indecent behavior with a dog. He also gets charged with assault and stealing. So in 1989, Ray moves to this part of... Adelaide, where John Bunting and friends are all kind of slowly coalescing. He's got some pretty out there sexual habits. Even as an adult, he continues his fetish for bestiality with dogs in his caravan, the horrors. 
<laughs> he also tries to get children to come into his caravan. And he's also known for uh, masturbating in front of his neighbors as they hurry on by, even if they'd be yelling, Ew. put it away. I know it's disgusting. So this woman, Suzanne Allen, who is apparently not the best judge of men, uh, gets into a relationship with Ray Davies. What are you doing, Suzanne? Suzanne, there's a reason things are going shitty in your life, and it's because you make these stupid decisions. Yeah. Don't have a relationship with the guy who lives in the caravan in your backyard who fucks dogs and tries to have sex with children. And beats off in front of the fucking neighbors. And beats off in front of the neighbors. As they scurry past because they're uncomfortable. As they scurry past yelling at him to put it away. (laughs) Suzanne, this is all that we ask. Anyway. (laughs) Some people's children. Exactly. So they actually become engaged for a time, but they break it off. At some point, Suzanne becomes pretty convinced that Ray Davies has tried to assault her own children. This comes to the attention of John Bunting. You know who to call. (laughs) John Bunting! (laughs) (laughs) He comes to the attention of John Bunting and they decide one day they're going to take Ray Davies for a drive. And it's not a drive that he'll survive. (laughs) I'm going to roll. Let's see what this takes. Yeah, let's go. They take Ray Davies for a drive. And while they do it, they start just attacking him. So at this point, Bunting is driving. Robert Wagner is sitting with Ray Davies in the back seat as they're driving along. And Robert Wagner is just wailing on Ray Davies in the back seat, just pounding him, punching him. This is breaking bones. This is just knocking him out. It's absolutely horrible. Eventually, they drive him back to Bunting's house. Nobody's home. They take him through this empty house and into the bathroom. Ooh, gentlemen in the audience, just like brace yourselves. All of you. Where they, yes, yeah, seriously, where they force him into the bathtub and then they smash him in the balls with a metal tube, with like a metal pole. And it gets to the <sighs> point where they've done it so much that his testicles actually swell to twice their size from this beating. He is in mortal agony. Fuck. But they don't want him to die here in the bathtub. So they, <laughs> they... They have their boundaries. They've got their boundaries. They know where to stop. So they have <laughs> him stand up and they tie him up. And then they sort of march him into the car. They end up driving him around in the back of their car for a while. And then they're back in Adelaide again. His balls are enormous by this point, And not by any virtue of his own manly strength. <sighs> And then they lie him on a mattress in Bunting's house that he's kind of got this probably terrifying mattress laying on the floor. <sighs> they call over this woman that Bunting is involved with, Elizabeth Harvey, and they kind of join and they strangle him. She stabs him, this woman, Elizabeth Harvey, who Bunting's kind of involved with, and then they also strangle her with jumper leads to make sure he's absolutely dead. This is their beginning of these torturous killings. And it's also, keep in mind that Elizabeth Harvey is Jamie's mother. Jamie Vlasakis' mother. Yes. So this is this is the, the kind of world that Jamie is coming into. That's right. That his mother is strangling. Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. So things are starting to really Ramp up. begin to escalate. 
Yeah, now they're getting a taste of it. You know, the first murder. I feel like that was almost like a just a like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to just try this and see if see how I go. And yeah, see if I like it. That was kind of the impression I felt anyways that mm-hmm. with that one, because it was just kind of like out of the blue almost. Like maybe well, he it was, planned it. It could have or... almost been like spo- almost like a spontaneous yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Just very out mm-hmm. of the blue. Like, you know, here. OK, well, here. You know what? You're here. Here's a shovel. Let me see what happens. And so it was obviously pretty disorganized. And but then this one also felt disorganized, but it was kind of like they needed to add in to their little recipe of torture some more elements, you know, with the balls and then the driving around, the strangulation and all of the stabbing. It's overkill. We don't need to do all that. So after Ray Davies was murdered, Suzanne Allen, who again was Ray Davies' uh, (laughs) sometime fiance slash landlady slash supplier of boys that he was interested in slash supplier of dogs that he had sex with maybe so she actually also died and it's not clear whether or not she died of natural causes or whether she was murdered if she was murdered it was likely because she knew too much yeah her remains were found uh in the backyard with Ray Davies remains. Remember we talked about them digging holes, how everyone, they just love their holes. Big, deep holes. And Bunting and his buddies, especially Robert Wagner with his brawn, they had ended up digging this big ass hole. And when I say big ass, I mean, it's 15 feet deep. Jesus. That is the height of your house plus then some. Yeah. It is really, really, really deep. You can't get in and out of it without a ladder. And later, when Ray Davies and uh, Suzanne Allen are dug up, they'll find one. And then they'll say, well, that's it. There's not any more in there. But then they keep digging down. And another six feet down, then they find the second one. Yeah. And she was dismembered. She was. This is so odd. This is the weird part to me that they, that it wasn't like, they, it was, it was like a unclear as to her manner of death, whereas... You can usually tell, like, you know, if somebody's been shot or bludgeoned or, you know, whatever the case is. With her, it didn't sound like there was any of that. She'd been in the ground for a while because this happened in November of 1996. They did not try them for her murder because it was unclear as to whether or not she was murdered or died of natural causes. Mm-hmm. But I go back to, they fucking dismembered her. <laughs> they, like, cut off her boobs. They, like, really dismembered her. It wasn't, it was beyond sort of dismembering for the purpose of convenience, like making her fit into a certain shape and more of just like mutilation. It was very unnecessary. If like silencing her was your whole goal or she had died by natural causes, why all the slicing and dicing? It doesn't make any sense. And also too, like she had a house. If she died of natural causes, why not? Like clearly they're fine with transporting a body because they did that before with Clinton like why not just take her back to her house she didn't live with him right if she died of natural causes just like lay her out in her bed exactly like yeah. oh whoa god you know we haven't heard from Suzanne for a while like you know let's go check her out oh, oh no she had a heart attack and she's dead in her bed exactly uh, nobody knows to get arrested for it come on John anyway moving right along so after Ray Davies and Suzanne Allen disappear the next to disappear is Michael Gardner Michael also sometimes goes as a Michelle. Uh, he's killed September 1997, and he was an openly gay man, and that's noteworthy because that wasn't necessarily the case in the mid-90s, especially in these not-so-progressive parts of yeah. Adelaide. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. 
Uh, Gardner shared a house with some friends in the neighborhood. Again, the neighborhood. Not a great neighborhood to live in if you're gay <laughs> because there's people hunting you. Robert Wagner, interestingly, didn't like Michael Gardner because of his open homosexuality. Which is so weird because when he's a couple with Barry, slash open homosexuality is their thing. Holding hands. Right? Like they're talking very about uncomfortable about it as they should be. Exactly. Like, what? how did you flip on this all of a sudden? Super weird. So they do the same thing to Gardner. They take him, they torture him, they murder him. At this point, they take his belongings, like his wallet, and Bunting wanted to use it to get access to Michael Gardner's bank account. And this is the first time they start looking at the bank accounts and the government-supported finances that people are receiving, like their welfare checks, as income sources. Michael Gardner was one of the bodies that was found in the bank in Snowtown. He was not buried. The body of Barry Lane, who was the next to die, was also found in the same barrel. And one of Michael Gardner's feet had to be removed so that the lid of the barrel could be closed. So he shared a barrel with Barry Lane except for one foot. Which is, I don't think a foot's that big. I mean, that thing, really? Like, you couldn't have made that work? It must have been a tight fit That was if that was the deal breaker. Did you know that when Michael Gardner, when he was murdered, that he was forced to stand, like he, they had strangled him? He was kind of like a noose. He was forced to stand on a, like a box. And, Gerard John Schaefer style. Yes, exactly. And they were, they were very like, they'd let him kind of get to the brink and then kind of bring him back and let him get to the brink. And it was a fucked up death. Fucked up deaths are going to be their specialty. Yes, they certainly are. Because comparatively speaking, I have to say that it's not nearly as fucked up as some of the others. There's some ones in here that turn my stomach. Uh, and we're yeah, coming up to and that's hard to do. I feel like that's hard to do. Right? We're pretty inured to a lot of this. You yes. and I have read a lot of stuff that if it hasn't turned my stomach yet, it's probably not going yeah. to. So Barry Lane is the next to die. Barry Lane, who was... Robert Wagner's older boyfriend, Barry Lane, who sat around the table at John Bunting's house and gave him information about local pedophiles that John Bunting could harass. They decide that Barry Lane's time has come. And, you know, Barry Lane is a convicted pedophile, so he kind of, like you said, Kia, he, you know, ticks those boxes for John Bunting and his buddies. Also, remember, John is still married to Veronica, and she doesn't play a huge part in my opinion, like she's kind of operating in the background because she doesn't really know what's happening, you know, so she's not part of this. At one point, Barry Lane goes and talks to her and tells her what they've been up to with Mm -hmm. the burying of Clinton. And she's like, oh, fuck, I don't believe he's like, don't tell don't tell John that I I told you this, but this is what's going on. And, uh, you know, he was like kind of shitting his pants. So of course, Veronica spilled her guts. Yeah, naturally. Then she she's like, oh, yeah, no, of course I won't say anything. Uh Naturally, she goes and she tells her husband because that's what you do. You know, it's like when you have a husband or a wife, the other person just knows automatically. It's like you you just tell them. And so she she tells him and he's just like, no, fuck, no, of course that's not happening. He's just, you know, he's a liar. You know, he's a liar. Like, just let it be and whatever, blow it off. And so at this point now, Barry Lane's in the crosshairs with 
John Bunting. And he's, he knows he can't, John Bunting knows Barry can't keep his mouth shut. Exactly. The fucking clock is ticking for this guy. Mm-hmm. And so he is next on the list. And so what ends up happening is, I guess he lets it go for a little while longer. He ends up talking to Veronica one more time about it. And she goes to John. And this time John's like, yeah, actually, this is true. And you better fucking shut the fuck up or you're dead me. And so now she fucking knows, but she's just like, oh, shit, I better not say anything. And so at this point, this is when they decide to take care of the Barry slash Vanessa problem. Mm -hmm. And they strangle Barry slash Vanessa at John's house. Of course, it's Wagner because he is the muscle, but it's just so ironic because they spent so much time together. You know, it's like they were lovers and they were talking about getting married. And ultimately, this is the person who's going to murder him. And so to me, that kind of trips me out. When they were killing him, though, they took it a step further. This is where some of the torture starts to come in because Barry's toes were kind of crushed with pliers. They crush the bones, yeah. Yeah, and then after he ends up dying, finally, they wrap him in carpet. Apparently, they had extra carpet laying around. I don't know. And then they place him in the barrel, which leads me to believe that had they not used the carpet, they could have left the foot. Do you think the carpet went into the barrel as well? I don't know. I mean, it just, that was how it was worded when I was reading it. They, they put his body in carpet and put him in a barrel. Well, that's just inefficient. I mean, unless I'm reading it too literally, but I'm like, get rid of the carpet, keep the foot. And then you'd have room for the damn foot. <laughs> Math. Thank How you. How does it work? <laughs> it's like Tetris. Yeah, fuck, I know. I'm like, I was good at Tetris. I can help you out, pal. I know. Anyway, I, know. I digress. We laugh so that we don't cry. <laughs> yeah. So in any case, Barry Lane has died. Under horrible circumstances, agonizing circumstances, he goes into one of the the drums. Oh, they're <sighs> keeping those. I was going to say the same thing. Go ahead. At this point, at this point, they're keeping the barrels in the shed in their backyard. It can lock. Obviously, that's a really good idea with dead bodies. But they've got now one barrel with two bodies. Yeah. And it does. It starts to not smell great. Yeah, and also, too, what time of year is this? Like, we're talking September, November? September, November is coming into very warm summer. Uh, Australian summer peaks in January. So they're starting to really not smell great. One thing we may not have mentioned about John Bunting is that John Bunting was born completely without a sense of smell. Something that really works in your favor when you deal a lot with decomposing corpses. Which is one reason he was so good at the abattoir. That's right, because he's just like, everything smells great. Even yeah. these, like, dead animals. Um, so he doesn't really notice it. He often asks people, you know, what does it smell like? Because he wants to know what that experience is like. But he often will lift open the lid of these barrels and look inside and kind of note <laughs> how much decomposition is taking place. And will say, say things like, these are rotting nicely or these are festering nicely. He really had a kind of a fascination with how the bodies would change as they decomposed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it kind of harkens back to that whole, he was really into chemicals. He was really into watching bugs die and seeing just sort of like how things come apart. So we're entering this period now where multiple people are going to be murdered and they're going to be murdered in pretty horrible ways. We don't need to go and linger on every single one of them, but I think that there are a couple that are really 
kind of worth examining as examples of really the level of depravity that this got into. The next to die is actually one that's done out of convenience. Thomas Trevelyan, uh-huh. who's 18 years old and is actually in a relationship with Barry Lane at the time. Dude, Barry Lane. Barry Lane is kind of the key point to many of these different people. Thomas Trevelyan had a really troubled life. He was on a lot of medication for very unstable behavior. And he was murdered to keep him quiet because he was starting to kind of talk about what he knew. I'm sure Barry had been talking to him about what had happened. If he talked to Veronica, he sure as hell talked to his own boyfriend. And the gang got him and took him and hung him from a tree. They had him stand on a box, they strung him up with a noose, and then they kicked the box out from under him. He was found, and it was assumed for quite a while that it was suicide. Mm -hmm. Until later, when all of this came out, and Thomas Trevelyan's relationship to Barry Lane came out, which then connected him to John Bunting, and then it all kind of came out. Yeah. So he's the next one. It's interesting with him because he... He did have some very serious mental health issues. And so he was a paranoid schizophrenic and apparently suffered incredible hallucinations. One of the hallucinations that he apparently suffered from was that he believed that the Grim Reaper was going to kill him. Wow. That's, Imagine that being true in your mind, how terrifying that would be. It's a fucking... Dark. Yeah. No, it's crazy. He had also helped earlier with murdering Barry. He was involved in that as well. The way that these things just overlap and intertwine, it's such a confusing web. It is. There's so many interconnected pieces of like, you know, his brother's cousin, sister's former roommate, etc. It just yeah. it boggles the mind. I mean, there's like a diagram that has been made of all the interconnected things here. And it it looks like like a history of a royal family. No, there's seriously. Like this and that and the other and arrows to here and like different arrows to there and it's all, like you said, incestuous without the incest. Yeah, that I know what diagram you're talking about. And it, mm-hmm. I, you, I feel like you need to have like a major degree to you read do. that. You, they should take, they should give like university courses in the Snowtown murders. That's like a master's thesis by itself. <laughs> I know. So <clears throat> next person to be killed was Gavin Porter. So Gavin was actually Jamie Blasakis's friend. Not a good person to be friends with. Nope. Uh, Jamie Vilsakis was not a murderous person, but any connection to John Bunting is a dangerous one. Uh, Gavin Porter was a heroin addict and not a terrible person. He was just in very shitty circumstances. He was hanging out at John Bunting's house where Jamie lived, and he left one of his syringes in the couch. Oh, it's a bad move, Gavin. It's a bad move. And John Bunting sits on it and gets stuck with the syringe, and he is absolutely enraged. Which I, I couldn't completely back that up. I would have been fucking pissed, too. I would have been pissed. I'd be like, did you just give me Dude, a What kind of disease? horrible disease did you just communicate to right. my body? It's not great. And so John Bunting, this is enough in his mind to justify yeah. Gavin Porter's death. So John Bunting strangles Gavin Porter while Gavin Porter kind of has fallen asleep in a car parked on John Bunting's property. So as these murders go, it's pretty innocuous because there's no gratuitous torture, but it's another one, another sort of notch in his belt, and so worth mentioning. Yeah, and also, too, at this point, uh, Jamie Flosakis was also dabbling in with the heroin. Another thing that John Bunting detested was drug use. 
like I had mentioned in the very beginning, he didn't fuck around with drugs at all. He didn't. Kind of surprising. You would kind of think that, you know, I guess, I don't know, I guess it's me just been stereotyping, but you would kind of think that it's this lifestyle, it's sort of like just this circular, like always constant, like the cycle never breaks Mm -hmm. with these things. And so it's kind of like you would sort of expect that these things would happen, you know, like the drug use and the, the alcohol abuse and all these things, but not for John Bunting, man. He was clear of mind and mm-hmm. he despised the drug use more mm-hmm. so than alcohol. And yes. so what was odd, though, is that kind of like how he did with Robert Wagner, mm-hmm. he gave Jamie Vlasakis a pass, even though he knew he was using heroin of all fucking things. And so, you know, it wasn't like the occasional, like, let's fucking blaze this shit up. Like, it was an injectable drug. Jamie Vlasakis and Gavin Porter were both part of a methadone program. So if he was using the heroin situation over at John Bunting's house, I don't think that's a great pairing with methadone. I don't think that that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so I get the impression that's not what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And so, you know, it was clearly just like poor decision after poor decision, but he totally gave Jamie Vlasakis a hall pass on the drug use. I don't know how he picked and chose like who it was that he would let live. Utility. Who's most <clears throat> useful to you? Or maybe it's just straight up utility. That's the only thing I can think of is just like, you know, who, who will serve you the best. So Porter's killed in his car, and the next to die is Troy Nude. Oh, Troy. Troy's kind of a piece of work. He's had his own amounts of abuse. He was horribly abused by his father. As so many of these were, it's just that the amount of sexual abuse in childhood that happens is really it's astonishing. staggering. And it's, cool. and it's not like it's one person. It's across the board. Yeah. Just amazing to me. So... He was horribly abused himself as a child, and he has served this abuse on to his uh, young half-brother, Jamie. Jamie one day breaks down to John Bunting and shares with him the details of this abuse. And John Bunting shares with Jamie that he also was sexually assaulted as a child. Yeah. So they have this to kind of bond over. It's like a trauma bond. The fact that John Bunting is already this father figure really cements this. Yeah. Troy Yude is the first murder that Jamie Vlasakis actively participates in. Troy Yude is the son of Elizabeth Harvey, um, who was living with Bunting at the time. was kind of his girlfriend. Troy was killed in the house that Bunting was living in after being dragged from his bed while he was asleep. Yeah, they took him into the bathroom, tortured him. Apparently, Jamie watched the whole thing go down. He, apparently, Troy, apparently begged Jamie to make them stop. And at this point, because it was Jamie's first murder that he was a part of, it said that he had to actually, like, leave the room because he was like, what the fuck? Oh, my God, this is like... I mean, I can't even imagine what that would be like, you know, just... You know, especially since that didn't really seem to be, like, his idea, necessarily. Like, how the fuck did it escalate to this? He ended up coming back in, and they had handcuffed Troy Yude. They gagged him, and essentially, like, they squeezed... They used the pliers again like they did with Barry... Um, they used the, the pliers on his toes and squeezed and crushed all of his toes. He was forced to apologize for sexually abusing Velasquez. And apparently 
to ensure that he was dead, Robert Wagner stood on his chest. Jumped up and down. Yeah. Now, one important thing to note about this is they have now started to voice record the murders. I don't know if it was like for like a trophy or whatever it was for, but they recorded it. Another thing to know about the voice recorder is that with multiple of their victims, what they would do is they would have these kind of snippets that they had these poor victims say before they died. Yeah. So they would have them say a whole bunch of different words or phrases that John Bunting then spliced them together into statements. Yeah. And then when when people would call them and say, oh, I haven't heard from you for a long time. Are you okay? They would get this like deluge of hateful words that kind of sounded weird, like they were kind of far away or really tinny or kind of electronic. But it would be like, you know, go fuck yourself. You don't get the message. I don't yeah. want to talk to you anymore. Um, One person was like, I met, a, I met a girl and I'm leaving. Right. You're not going to see me again. I'm done with you. And so all of these sort of fake recordings in the victim's own voice yeah. were made before they died so that later there was a way to sort of keep them alive yeah. after the murder and to quote unquote prove that they were still alive. So they were able to kind of get away with this for a long time because people were thinking, well, I guess she's gone and she's moved to another place or I guess he's he's done or I guess yeah. this has happened. And it was a very not stupid way to it was a good uh, way to throw the, the scent off yeah absolutely it was <laughs> can i add one quick thing to that Go for it. did you know that they named the voice recordings that john bunting and his little gang of misfits named it the voices of the dead oh, that's just nasty. isn't that and horrible so melodramatic and that takes us to a very unfortunate man yes. named fred brooks yep 18 years old. Oh, poor Fred. Poor Fred. So he was uh, an intellectually disabled young man. He was the son of a woman named Jody Elliott, who was infatuated with John Bunting, because apparently that was just going around. Dude, John Bunting went around like coronavirus went around. He really did, man. He had a way with the ladies. (laughs) Certainly a virus. Um, Fred Brooks was chosen by John Bunting, partly because he was the easy target. And John Bunting kind of looked down on anybody that he saw as uh, lesser or, you know, especially people who were intellectually disabled or were drug addicts or anyone he didn't value as like a, you know, full contributing citizen like himself. Uh, he's He is just the full package, really. He's the total package. Yeah. They just saw him as an easy victim and they just went yeah. for it. So he wasn't gay or he wasn't a pedophile. He wasn't anything that previously had uh, been a target. They just wanted to do it and so they did. So they found him. They lured him to Bunting's house and he was attacked and he was really horribly tortured. Would you like to go into some of the ways that he was tortured or shall I? Oh God. Uh, Just letting you know it's going to be unpleasant. Yeah, this is a trigger warning. Yeah, we're just gonna keep giving trigger warnings until you guys either get it or you're just like, I'm here. Just for the tell cure. me, tell me the story. That's right, exactly. So Fred Brooks, they used a tool on him for a metallurgy or a metalworking tool called a variac machine, which is just as awful as it sounds. It does and, sound awful. And they basically electroshocked his penis and his testicles. Um, 
they got a, a sparkler like you would put on a birthday cake and they stuck it down into his urethra which is the hole in your penis and then they lit it on fire and it burned down into his penis i'm sure that all parts of that were as horrific as they sound yeah i i don't um, have one and i mm-hmm. i'm clenching and, and right imagine. now i'm clenching in sympathy um they crushed his toes they stuck burning cigarettes into his nose and his ears and in the end they let him choke to death on his gag yeah and that's how they killed this 18 year old kid they had handcuffed him as well and beaten him like severely so brutal they loved all of this like especially robert wagner and john bunting they both really had a taste for torture and a really strong sadistic streak. I don't see that Mark Hayden had it, and I don't see that Jamie Vilsakis had it, but John Bunting and Robert Wagner were two peas in a pod when it came to inflicting pain. I get the impression that they kind of like to one-up each other a little bit. Yeah, it was a little competition. It turns out they both were the worst. (laughs) Tie. It's a total tie, but they were awful to Fred Brooks. They did just horrific things to him. After they put the sparkler where they put it that lighter was hot and so they used it to stamp like kind of brand him with that you know if you turn a lighter upside down that's hot enough it'll make a happy face are you serious Mm -hmm. i remember kids doing it when i was in high school but it was a thing where Mm -hmm. people would do this and they would they would take a lighter and they would get it as hot as they could get it and Mm -hmm. they would stamp themselves because it looked like it, it was like a brand of a happy face and that's what they did they did that all over his body oh jesus yeah And he ended up in a barrel, just like the others. So now we're kind of starting to get a large assortment of barrels. So it's important to think about what's happening with these barrels. So there is a, like a four wheel drive vehicle that comes into play here. And that's going to become very important in the investigation later. They end up driving this, a lot of the barrels around in this four wheel drive vehicle. And Mark Hayden has a property and they kind of park the vehicle on his property. And the people who live there are noticing this foul stench coming out of the car. Later, when the barrels are moved into the bank vault, the stench remains in the car, even when the barrels are in Uh, Yeah, I don't think you can get that out. I don't think you can, you have to just burn the whole thing to the ground to get it out. (laughs) It should have been if it wasn't. Right. It's interesting to me, the barrels are interesting to me. We'll kind of talk about it a little later, but. Australia is a very big place with a lot of empty space and a lot of places to hide things. It's not like Japan where every square inch of space has to be accounted for because it's a small place with a lot of people who need a lot of room. Australia is vast. It would be the easiest thing in the world to stash a body in the back of your car, drive three hours in almost any direction, turn off into the middle of nowhere, find some isolated little spot, dig down six feet, drop it in, fill it up, put some rocks on top, drive away. Nobody's ever going to find it. She's never, ever thought about this before, you guys. No, never. I've never thought about it one (laughs) single time. This is a new thought for me. And the thought is like, why, why was it so important for John Bunting to keep these bodies in barrels? So they, by the way, people, they were, they were telling people they were dead kangaroos. That's right, because they were, like, going to start selling kangaroo meat. Right, but, like, or some it was clearly <laughs> decomposing, so, like, the story doesn't check out. Who's no going to buy your decomposer and kangaroo carcasses, and why would you keep them? None of it makes sense. No. So, 
I think a lot of people who had questions were just like, I'm just not going to talk about this with this guy. They are getting a collection of barrels now. They've got like, I think about three or four at this point. Yeah. But there's going to be more. There's still a few more people to go. Still more to go. So next up, Gary O'Dwyer. Oh, poor um, Gary. Poor Gary. Gary's 29. He was disabled in a car accident physically and sort of mentally. He had a brain injury. It's at a TBI and he was uh, on a pension. He was a stranger. He didn't have a relationship with any one of them. He just happened to be super unlucky. He was identified as an easy target, especially for his benefits. And there were attempts, I think successful attempts, to access his benefits and kind of put them into either John Bunting's name or to get them somehow. They were able to be withdrawn. When they captured him, I guess for lack of a better term, they, they did it by like kind of befriending him. And they had invited him over to the house for mm-hmm. a couple of drinks. And then he was handcuffed and beaten and whipped. And they also used that Variac machine on him and ultimately killed him. And he was the next one to go in a barrel. You know, the last couple of ones, I think it's important to really like distinguish that, you know, the last couple of people who we've talked about, they didn't do anything. You know, it, it went didn't. from being this like crusade or van- van- Vagilante. It's Vagilante. <laughs> oh, gross. I'm going to say that again. Say it. It went from being a crusade or like a vigilante kind of thing to now total fraud. It's becoming a thing where these people's lives are less important than the rush or the thrill of the kill and mm-hmm. and the money that they're getting. And, the money. and they're such easy targets. Like, what a pussy move. Yeah. To go it's going to miss them. To go for like, a guy who just, has a learning yeah. disability and then the next victim is somebody who is disabled from a car accident. Like what? I just want some friends. What a punk ass bitch move. It's pretty awful. One of the things that I found really telling later Jamie Vlasakis will give a lot of testimony about yeah. pretty much everybody else. But one of the things he talked about was how John Bunting was very obsessed with witnessing the moment of death. So while Robert Wagner was kind of standing behind a victim with like something around the guy's neck, you know, choking the life out of him with yeah. big ass, dumbass hands, John Bunting would be right up in the victim's face. Like looking into the eyes of the victim. Looking into the eyes, like his face inches from yeah. the victim's face, watching and observing intently that moment of death and watching the light fade from the eyes. And and watching that moment was incredibly important to him. It would seem, almost seemed like a almost religious experience. It should also be noted that during these attacks, John Bunting insisted that the victim call himself and Robert Wagner and Jamie Vlasakis and all of them by these names like Lord Master, God, Sir, yeah, all these Lord, Sir, all these combinations of, yeah. of these titles to really denigrate them a little further. But John Bunting was definitely a thrill killer. Oh, yeah. Power control, thrill, you name it. Yeah. Yes. And that domination. I mean, when you've had something, I don't want to go too deep because I, th- I think he is a real piece of shit and he's like super evil. Yes. When you've had something done to you that strips away every inch of your control, one way to feel like you're getting control back is to make sure you are always the one on top from now on. You're always the doer. You're never going to be in a vulnerable position again. Yep, you're never going to be the done to, never again. And so every time 
that he killed, it verified to him that he was the doer. And every time he looked into their eyes, it was the final insult to his victim that he had ultimate power and control. They were the, that was the last thing that they laid eyes on in this world was the man who killed them. Yes. It was terrific. You can see why this was disturbing for Australians in general. Yeah. I it mean, it's very disturbing. And it's such an old case that still disturbing to me. Yeah. 20 it, years later. Tw- yeah. 20 something years later. We are two victims from the end. The next one to die is a woman. And she's killed as a matter of keeping the whole thing from blowing up. She was so a loose a end. Loose She's a loose end, but not for much longer. So Mark Hayden, who was one of John Bunting's accomplices, not as bad as Robert Wagner, but still definitely involved and aware of what's going on. Yes. His wife, Elizabeth Hayden, is kind of aware of all this shit. Yeah. And she's starting to give signs that she's going to talk. She's also Frederick Brooks's aunt. Fred Books, who got murdered. That's yeah. right. Why not? People in the family. Why the hell not? That's right. She's Fred Brooks's aunt. That's yeah. Crazy. Fred Brooks uh, was the gentleman who got the sparkler in the yes. penis. If you're losing track of who's who, <laughs> sparkler and penis guy. So Elizabeth Hayden is killed by Bunting and Wagner in her home while Mark Hayden is out. They don't do it in front of Hayden, Hayden and they don't expect him to participate. They strangle her. They strangle her and they kill her. And she is cut up and she is put into a barrel. She's also a mother of like seven or eight children, right? Didn't she have like half of Adelaide? A good half. She was also a woman who was not really the best mom and not really the best example. Obviously, that doesn't excuse what they did to her, but just in terms of her choices that she would make in her life, she was definitely not exactly on the up and up herself. And she did know way too much, according to this group. And so that is why they handled her. They handled her big time. So she's a number 10 that we know of. Yeah. Here comes the last one. Now, the last one is interesting because it's Jamie Vlasakis's half-brother. <sighs> Why not? Again, let's just kill everybody. Everybody in your family. Yeah. His name is David Johnson. Oh. He's 24. Now, at this time, all of the barrels have been moved into this bank vault. Yes. So this bank vault was actually rented by John Bunting. He discovered it as a great place to keep his barrels. Once again, why would you keep them? Why not just get rid of them? You know what? Sure, store them in an abandoned bank vault in a tiny Australian town. That sounds like a great idea. Now, this old bank is actually connected to a house. Somebody was actually living in the house at the time. Mm -hmm. They weren't really aware of everything that was going on. At this point, we're at the last murder before the discovery happens. And it's also worth noting at this time that there's been quite a little bit of investigation going on in the background. There has been. Mm -hmm. So the cops have become aware that there's something interesting going on with all these missing people, and they start to kind of piece things together. So after Elizabeth Hayden went missing, her brother reported her missing just a couple of days after her disappearance. And her husband, Mark, who knew about his wife's murder, kind of started giving these very shifty reasons for her disappearance. His story kept changing. That is, 
a absolute indicator of some kind of guilt. The brother was like, this is not adding up. So he calls the police. They already have been sniffing around John Bunting and Robert Wagner, and they actually have been tapping their phones. They've been surveilled. Yeah. Based on some other anonymous tips of like, there's something weird going on here. People people kind of been, yeah, calling it in. But now they had this missing, recently missing person with a brother's report and Mark Hayden not really being able to give a good reason for his wife's disappearance. And and also too, not being the one to report his wife's disappearance. Like, hello, your wife Mm -hmm. disappeared. Her brother's going to report it before you do. Like, wouldn't you think that you would be the person, the first person to report your spouse missing? What the fuck, Mark? And they tie Elizabeth Hayden and Mark Hayden to John Bunting and Robert Wagner. And there's a lot of chin stroking that happens at this point. Mm, interesting. So there's some, there's some serious surveillance happening at this point, but not soon enough to save David Johnson's oh. life. Poor David Johnson. It's just his bad luck. Had they been a couple of days earlier, they could have saved his life. Jamie Blasakis's half-brother, David Johnson, was lured to the bank vault in Snowtown by Jamie Blasakis. Jamie says to his half-brother, David Johnson, so I've got this computer that you might be interested in buying. Do you want to check it out? Yeah. And David Johnson's like, that sounds great. And Jamie says, oh, it's in Snowtown, as you do. Right. Um, Why would it not be? Yeah, why would it not be? Let's drive together. So it's kind of evening. They drive together to this abandoned bank vault. And when they get there... David's all like, oh, it's in here? And Jamie's like, yeah, it's in here. Let's just go inside. They go inside. Bunting and Robert Wagner are already there. The barrels are there. Probably doesn't smell great. There's a bunch of very alarming equipment, like knives, the Variac machine that they're so enamored of, like gloves, like all this very stabby equipment. Killing tools. So... Uh, At this point, Jamie actually leaves, and he leaves because he's been instructed by Bunting to take the information that they have lightly beaten so far out of David Johnson, including his PIN number, and to go and see if that works. So Jamie drives to another town where there's an ATM, because there's not one in Snowtown. Because it's a disused bank. How ironic. It's a disused bank, right? It's not going to be a workable ATM. (laughs) And he drives to another town called Port Piri, and he uh, checks out to see, and it doesn't work. So he drives back. By the time he gets back, David Johnson has already been killed pretty awfully. It's interesting, and I think really worth noting, that David Johnson is the only victim who was killed in Snowtown. That's right. When we talk about the Snowtown murders, it's just where they're found. Yes. I mean, it's the Snowtown murder. Singular. After they murdered poor David Johnson, it was rumored from several sources that during the dismemberment period that they had kind of taken a chunk of his human meat. Mm -hmm. And he was the only person that they were known to do this with. But after he was dismembered, they had taken a chunk of his body and decided to, you know, bring it over to a friend's house. Mm -hmm. And decided to go ahead and cook it. Unbeknownst right to the friend that he was eating human flesh. Um, <laughs> he was the only victim that they know of where cannibalism was involved. Later, of course, the friend finds out that, mm-hmm. oh, fuck, I ate a person. 
I liked it. <laughs> now I've got the taste for flesh. When I was listening to a couple of different things on this, the guy who was talking is Australian and his accent was really thick. He said that when they took the meat over to the friend's house, that they had room meat. And I kept hearing roommate. And I was like, what? Like, how is that better? Why is this? What, what do you mean he didn't know? And then I put it together and I was like, kangaroo meat. Kangaroo meat. Roo meat. Not roommate. Anyway, back to the murder. The last murder has been committed. And it's just a couple of days before their court. So so at this point, there are eight people whose bodies are distributed across six different barrels in this disused bank vault in the middle of nowhere. But only 15 feet. Where's the 16th foot? Who knows? I don't know if they ever found it. I don't think they did. So as I mentioned, these barrels had temporarily been stored in this four-wheel drive vehicle on Mark Hayden's property. As they start investigating Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance, they talk to other folks who recognize that the vehicle is now gone. And the police are very interested in where this vehicle is. One day, they're surveilling Wagner and Bunting, and these two guys are being tailed by the police, but they don't know it. They get tailed all the way to Snowtown and they go into the bank vault. The police kind of pull over way off to the side of the road where nobody can see them. And what should be parked in the driveway of the bank vault, but this four-wheel drive vehicle. Toyota Land Cruiser. Right, that they have been looking for, it's right there. The police just decide to leave it there for the time being. They send more officers to the bank vault in about four days. So these officers turn up. If you want names, it's Detective Steve McCoy and Greg Stone. They sound like they know what they're doing. They arrive. With them is an officer named Bronwyn Marsh, and she is the physical evidence section officer. So she's there to kind of make sure that if anything is found, that it goes through all the right steps to ensure it can be used in court, not compromised in any way. They arrive at the town, and they knock on the door of this house that is attached to the bank vault. And a guy answered, his last name is Cordwell. He answers the door and they say to him, so this car, this this four wheel drive land cruiser that is parked in this driveway, we believe it's involved in the disappearance of this woman named Elizabeth Hayden. And we need to speak to you about this and we need you to tell us how you know about it. He tells them, that it's been brought up to his premises here by John Bunting and Robert Wagner. And it was brought here because it smelled really bad and people were complaining about the smell and that the vehicle had black barrels in it, but they've been moved. And then he kind of gestures towards the vault and he hands Detective McCoy a key and he says, the barrels are in there, in the vault. (sighs) And so McCoy's like, hang on, wait, was it? So they go to the vault. They unlock it. They go in. The vault is completely black. Right away, the stench absolutely hits them. Bronwyn Marsh just reels out, gagging and vomits as soon as she gets outside. It's just a visceral response to that smell. Like an unmistakable, you know exactly what that is as soon as it hits you in the face. That's exactly right. So they, they see the barrels. They open one up. 
they look inside, they see a floating hand, and they're like, this is what we've been looking for. We didn't expect to find it quite like this. Yeah. But something's going on here. Yep. There's six of them, though. The odor is a giveaway. They know right away something's happening here. Right away, it's a crime scene. They also find knives, gloves, and handcuffs in the vault that have seen recent use. Not long after this, I think it might even be a few days after, at their homes in the morning hours, a raid, a simultaneous raid occurs on Bunting's home, Wagner's home, and Hayden's home. And they knock on the door at the same time, 6.47 in the morning. Jamie Vlasakis, of course, lives with Bunting, answers the knock at the door, and they say, hello, we would like to speak to John Bunting, please. Bunting is arrested on suspicion of murder of an unidentified body discovered in a barrel at a bank vault in Snowtown. And he is taken into custody right away, as are Robert Wagner and Mark Hayden. And you're right. It was only a matter of a couple of days. From what Mm -hmm. I can tell, it was initially like the discovery was around May 18th and they were arrested May 21st. So it was just several days. Like they locked the shit down. I think it's really important to mention because you had brought up an important detail about how they were surveilling them. There was a woman by the name of Debbie Marshall and she was kind of like the go-to person like deciphering the kind of lingo that they were using while they were being surveilled like you know is the machine re- the machines ready or they need to go to the clinic or mm-hmm. you know it's time to and play. this like coded words yes they had to kind of like decipher is this code or like what the hell are these guys talking about but that was also part of this whole investigation was when they tapped in and they were listening to what they were saying they were looking for these clues i think they weren't expecting to find this though Certainly not. Who could have ever made this up? You know what I mean? So they're taken into custody and uh, 24 hours after the barrels have been discovered, they are trucked back to Adelaide where they are examined by a forensic pathologist named Dr. John Gilbert. He's done about 3,500 autopsies in his time handling dead bodies, and so he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's got it down by now. And the police have labeled these barrels A to F, and they've opened the tops of the barrels and they've looked inside, and it's very obvious that there are body parts and fluid. They take pH uh, samples of them, and some of them indicate sort of quite high acidity, because jump hunting tries to put hydrochloric acid into some of them, which really doesn't do a lot. At this point, they have to get the pieces of people out of the barrels. So they start this task of removing the fluid from the barrels. They tip each one of them onto its side and they sort of sift out the body parts as the fluid is pouring out of these barrels uh, to catch all the parts that are inside. And that is about the worst job I can think of. Yeah. I can't think of anything more horrific than that. There was 903 kilograms worth of stuff in each of these barrels. It was a vast amount of human parts. This process of taking all the insides of the barrels out takes about three and a half hours. Oh my God. 
And this is what Dr. John Gilbert says in what I think is a masterpiece of understatement. (laughs) All of the bodies were quite remarkably putrefied and they were quite unpleasant to work with. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... So interestingly, the body parts had rotted or you know putrefied to a certain degree yeah but then because they had had lids on them oxygen had run out so the bacteria need oxygen to live exactly once the bacteria have used up all the oxygen it kind of just halts the process of decay and so dr gilbert described this as suspended putrefaction so they had kind of rotted to a point and then stopped the destruction of the cells and body tissues had really kind of come to an end. However, there had been enough decay that some of the injuries were were hard to determine. One thing that was very odd that they discovered during the autopsies was that some of the fecal matter in these bodies actually had these very odd crystalline particles in them it looked like glass and that's what they thought it was at the start i mean can you imagine don't even think about that but in fact it was particles of magnesium and phosphorus dr gilbert was completely baffled by this and said he had no idea where they came from or why on earth they were there they shouldn't have been there and he's never seen anything like it in fecal matter before it wasn't just one body it was several bodies so whether it was some strange reaction whether it was something to do with the manner of torment that they received close to their death it's hard to know but these strange tiny crystalline particles in the fecal matter of the corpses was a very strange and odd detail that couldn't be explained it's so weird it would be so interesting to find out which victims that was on because i'm assuming that doesn't say it probably just it didn't say it and i was very po'd that it didn't say (laughs) i'm a little po'd for that too now you had something you wanted to share It's just a quick little side note about the use of the hydrochloric acid. For somebody who kind of fancied himself like an amateur chemist... Quite the chemist. uh, He wasn't quite the chemist. He was quite a shitty chemist. If you're going to use an acid to dissolve a body, much like how you had said the lack of oxygen actually kind of helped to preserve them, Mm. so did the hydrochloric acid. Apparently, because it was hydrochloric acid, that enabled the scientists to kind of lift up some of the fingerprints and also identify tattoos on some of the victims. Sulfuric acid is the preferred method for effective disposal. Just a side note, this is not in any way, shape, or form. Fucking do not try this shit at home. I'm just trying to distinguish the difference between hydrochloric and sulfuric. And also it's fun to note that... It's kind of fun and interesting to know these things, I think, anyway. John Bunting is kind of a dick when it comes to his, like, much-vaunted chemical abilities. a shitty chemist. Mm -hmm. Just like he's a shitty human. a human being, exactly. (laughs) Again, again, I have to say, do not try this at home. And don't murder people. For the love of God! So, at this point, these four people who've been arrested, John Bunting, Robert Wagner... Mark Hayden and Jamie Vlasakis are arrested on murder. The trial begins. The first one who was sentenced was actually Jamie Vlasakis. So he was given four life sentences. 
he actually pleaded guilty to four of the murders. He also provided a massive amount of eyewitness testimony yeah. that implicated strongly uh, the other three men, especially Bunting and Wagner. The trial for Bunting and Wagner actually took almost a year to complete. It was very long, but the court had a lot of problems with the jury. A couple of them really had to tap out. There is so much we know about how horrible this is. There is a massive amount of information that has not been released to the public. Right. And it's all under suppression orders. And if you think about what we do know and consider that so much has been withheld because of how terrible it is, that gives you some idea about what we don't know. It's pretty horrific. Yeah, especially too because the recordings of the victims when the, oh you know God. they were played for the jury. They've never been released. Like no, you can't. I don't think you'll ever be able to get a hold of one. And I wouldn't want to hear it. I there. You know what? There's a line. That's it. Yep. <laughs> Things that you can't unhear and you can't yeah. remember, and that would be one of them. For good reason, they have kept those suppressed. And so the jurors and all the people who were in the courtroom, including David Johnson's father, had to listen to the tape of his son being tortured and murdered. Um, Also, he is the one victim who was cannibalized. So this father has really endured quite a lot. With Yeah, the amount of trauma that that these murders inflicted is wide-ranging. A lot of people's families suffered. The jurors were there was so much like PTSD from listening to this it was like a very long period of time for some people before they could like kind of move on like they were really yeah, they had damaged to get, like, extensive counseling yeah a lot of therapy after that which I mean fuck how could you not no for sure so Bunting and Wagner were both found guilty on the 8th of September 2003 which was about 11 months after their trial began Bunting was convicted of 11 murders and Robert Wagner who pleaded guilty to three of them was actually convicted of 10 murders. They both appealed those convictions and they were eventually sentenced to life imprisonment, served cumulatively, but essentially they're not ever going to be released. No. I believe it's life without per- the possibility of parole. Yes. Uh, the judge, Justice Brian Martin, said that men were in the business of killing for pleasure and were incapable of true rehabilitation, which I think is pretty accurate. I mean, considering everything that they did to people, this case was so complicated. They were charged, Bunting and Wagner and Mark Hayden were charged in July of 1999. That's a long time. They were finally found guilty in September. That's a long fucking time, 99 to 03. Interestingly enough, as we had mentioned previously in this episode, Suzanne Allen was not determined to be a victim because they couldn't rule on the manner of death. So that one's just sort of like out there in the ether. Bunting and Wagner, when Mm -hmm. hearing the recordings of the people that they had tortured, had no emotion. They just both sat there fucking, oops. They both just sat there totally stone-faced. Like nothing. Just not giving a shit. fucking nothing. Nothing there. Yeah. Incapable of true rehabilitation. Exactly. And Mark Hayden was charged with two counts of murder. He was initially convicted of five counts of assisting in the crimes. Mm. He um, appealed those charges and uh, eventually the murder charges against him were dropped in return for guilty pleas to these new charges of assisting in the killing of his wife and Troy Ude. Yeah, 
When he was sentenced, it was, I thought this was kind of a hilarious term. As we sort of said before, you know, he wasn't the brightest fucking bulb on the tree. And so he was sentenced to 25 years with parole after 18, which, I mean, I'm thinking that's coming up here pretty quick. Yeah, um, pretty quick. But he was, <laughs> the judge found him guilty of assisting and, quote, being a manservant. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I didn't know that being a manservant was a crime, but God bless you, judge. Jeez. What do you do with a manservant? Make <laughs> it a crime? <laughs> I just thought it was so funny. Like, what a weird, like, way to wrap being that up. Being a manservant. <laughs> it's weird. I find you guilty of that. So something else that's really noteworthy about the Jamie Vlasakis, he kind of flipped and ended up becoming a witness for the prosecution. And while he was charged and convicted of four murders, he also took the stand for 32 straight days as a grueling. fucking grueling. I don't know for how long he was questioned or cross-examined or whatever. It didn't. I couldn't find that, but it was over a month that he was on the stand and he was sentenced in 2002 to a minimum of 26 years. He's also held in isolation and remains unidentified because all of, with like his um, cooperation, um, they agreed to suppress his images. And so it's pretty much impossible to find a picture of him. You can only find very early. So yeah, like, like as an adult, I don't you wouldn't know so you have to admire the airtightness of that like usually there are leaks or yeah, some or somebody kind of leak, takes yeah. a photo of a photo but like it is nothing has come out yeah so he's he's in isolation at an unidentified south australia prison i don't know how many of those there are but apparently that's where he is yeah it's just about impossible to find anything else on him after the murders um mm-hmm. and after his conviction that's kind of like that's where it stops because uh, of all the suppression orders um, the movie Snowtown. I am not going to watch it, and I've heard that it is a profoundly disturbing movie. I, to I don't want to watch it either. I don't want to watch it either. But that was really created from Jamie Vlasakis's perspective, and it really details his experience. And I think it paints him in a pretty realistic light, but also something of a sympathetic light as well. Yeah. I don't think that colors how I feel about it too much, but I I do have some sympathy for him given the horrific circumstances of his early life. I can see kind of how he got to where he got. I I think it's kind of crazy that from the point where he was convicted, that he could be eligible for parole in four years. That's not long. That's not a long time. Four years is going to go by in a blink of an eye. Or four years or 48 months. Or or (laughs) one or the other. Four years, 48,000 miles. I don't know. One way or the other. So a couple of other little side notes for this case that happened. We had mentioned Elizabeth Harvey. She's the one who participated in at least one of the murders and who is also Jamie's mother. She passed away from cancer very, very shortly after her son was convicted. And so she was never, ever tried for any of her alleged involvement with anything. Interestingly enough, for Snowtown, after the barrels were discovered, because this was a relatively like small farming community, kind of a blip on the map. If you didn't know it existed, you probably wouldn't know if it wasn't for this. It kind of gave the town a little bit of an economic boost. Some of the townsfolk actually kind of decided to cash in and sell some like really morbid trinkets and souvenirs because people come into the town all the time. Where's this bank vault that we've heard so much about? You know, we want to see where the horrible murders took place because they don't know it was just one. 
some of the other residents of the community were like, no, we're not into this at all. Like, we need to shake this fucking stigma. We're done. We hate this. Let's just fucking move forward and never speak of this again. And so there was like a whole kind of like committee to try to change the name. And one possibility was Rosetown was not super creative. But for whatever reason, I don't know why they just... doesn't seem like it would be that hard for a town of less than a thousand people to just fucking change the name but i don't know all the ins and outs of that and so to this day they remain Snowtown, but they do kind of tend to thrive off of some of the tourism that's brought in from all of these stories that happen the documentaries the films the tv shows fucking nosy ass podcasters podcasters who just want to fucking talk about this horrible shit in one of the um one of the interviews with a, a town resident they were saying that some of the town folk actually find it really hilarious when um, a tourist comes in and starts taking selfies in front of the wrong building. <laughs> Which I personally find pretty hilarious myself. That would be me. Yeah, I know. I'd be like, yeah, no, it's totally over there. And then finally, one last little thing, which is kind of good, but sort of weird also, because it's sort of circled back and was kind of fucked up. The house in Salisbury North, where John lived, was demolished. But... Apparently now, today, as it stands, it is a like an apartment building for elderly people. Oh, dear. The Snowtown case winds a long, untwisted path that leads from Queensland to South Australia to Adelaide, to economically depressed outer suburbia, to a shallow depression in a windswept field, to a 15-foot-deep backyard grave, and finally to the disused bank vault in Snowtown where six barrels held eight people and where the entire story finally broke into the light of public awareness. This case is massive and complicated. More than that, though, it's disturbing and uncomfortable. And at its heart is the relationship between four men with John Bunting as their leader. Without Bunting as the driving force, none of this would have happened. Robert Wagner provided muscle, savagery, devotion to bunting, and a willingness to escalate his own actions in step with his leader. Mark Hayden, smaller in stature and no smarter than Wagner, was also enamored of John Bunting and was willing to go along with every suggestion. Jamie Vlasakis initially saw Bunting as a father figure who offered him the support he lacked with his own abusive father. Later, despite his horror at the murders, Jamie would participate in the torture and murder of his half-brother, stepbrother, and two other men. This case rocked the sensibilities of everyday Australians, undermining their trust in their countrymen as good bloats, already fragile after the Ivan Malat case and the Port Arthur massacre in the mid-90s. These revelations of torture, murder, dismemberment, and cannibalism further eroded Australians' belief in themselves as an inherently good people. The case also shone a light on the dark underside of Australian society. Hopeless people on the fringes, exposed in their youth to violence, particularly sexual violence, with the cruel pressures of poverty and lacking the education they'd need to rise out of their circumstances. This, quote, degenerate subculture, end quote, gave birth to this frenzy of violence a series of actions that unnerved the residents of orderly, quiet Adelaide, including myself. It seemed impossible that easygoing Australians could create such torture and carnage. 
it attacked the very foundation of who Australians believed they were. Although only one of the 11 murders occurred in Snowtown, the place is forever linked in the Australian psyche with these acts of pure savagery. Our imaginations take us into the vault, into the barrels, and the horror found inside them. As one Snowtown police officer said, it was a scene from the worst nightmare you've ever had. I don't think any of us was prepared for what we saw. You've been listening to Homicide Worldwide. what you could do with a place like that just like make it a memorial it memorial or an empty lot or a park or just something just yeah. something that's not a fucking apartment co- like why people live that's awful yeah. no matter that's what cool. it's like that's still like a fucking accursed ground yeah it's like a pet cemetery but for people, <laughs> but people it's a cemetery yeah exactly yeah